Um, today, we are starting a brand new series. Uh, we are in the book of Galatians. And, um, and as a teaching team, we're talking a lot about, okay, what do we sense coming? Because it's not just what do we think would be interesting to study. Uh, it's also a mixture of what do we feel like the Lord is saying. Uh, Living Streams, uh, we have this sort of prophetic center to us, and we're always trying to have an ear inclined to what the Lord is saying. Um, and we felt in the season like it's really important to come, come down on a couple of things. First, to really define truth in a society that's starved for truth right now. Like, we don't know where to go. We keep hearing lies, and it's this oppressive sort of thing that's hitting our society. We want to drill down into the truth. And second, it's a lot like the first, is that the truth is really only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like we could really only fully understand truth when we fully understand the gospel. And naturally, as we started talking about that, we said Galatians. Galatians is like, uh, you know, kind of the, the child of the book of Romans. So Romans is this deep, deep theological dive. Galatians is kind of the, uh, you know, like the shortened version of it, you know, which is great. Good for us, you know. Um, and we're going to be diving into Galatians between now and Easter. But ultimately, Galatians really is only about one thing, and it's defining the gospel of Jesus Christ and talking about the pure gospel of Jesus. And today, as I've been thinking about it, I'm going, oh, going okay, all right, how do we dive into Galatians? Um, instead of going into Galatians 1.1 today, which would be our normal thing, like we just did with Philippians, we'll just start right off the bat. Today, we are going to talk through the entire book of Galatians in 30 to 35 minutes. Um, we're going to talk through the whole book. And we want to just give a quick flyover of the book, and then next week we're going to be diving into the details. So today, just for full disclosure, we might be talking about a few things where you go, dang, I wish we would unpack that idea a little bit more. Be patient. We are going to unpack all of these things as we go, but today we're going to fly over. And what it reminded me of is uh, in 1988, I received a gift that I was really excited about. Uh, the 1988 version of Ryan was really excited about one thing, and that was video games. I was very excited about video games. And in 1988, one of the best video games came out. It was called Mario Brothers 3. Super Mario Brothers 3. Now, Mario Brothers 1, we all know, dun, 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 you know, it's classic. It, it got all of us in my generation addicted to video games like no other. Uh, then Super Mario Brothers 2 came out, which was straying from the formula, and it was weird. If you, remember, if you were a kid in the 80s, you remember Mario Brothers 2 was kind of weird. Um, then came Super Mario Brothers 3, and you were like, finally. It's like the redemption of the first version of Super Mario. It's like all the same stuff as the first one, but then they add like this raccoon Mario that can fly. And like the whole time in Mario 1, you're like, I wish I could fly. Now they gave that to you. It's awesome. And I got that video game and I played it nonstop. And one day my friend came over uh, and he had just gone to a place called a bookstore, which is like a physical place where you get books and they don't ship them to you. Um, and at the bookstore, he had gotten a book about video game cheat codes. He's like, these are all the cheat codes. And we were like going through it. And of course, there's one in Super Mario Brothers 3. And the cheat in Super Mario Brothers 3, and some of you might remember if you're nerdy and you were in the 80s, uh, you would get these like little magical flutes. And if you got three of the magical flutes, 
you got to go from the first area of Super Mario Brothers 3 to the last level. And you would like get up in the air and you would just fly over the entire map and you'd be going, I don't have to play any of those levels. I just got to go to the very end. And it was awesome. It was amazing. Today is the cheat code for Galatians, okay? We're going to fly over Galatians. Uh, I'm going to hit some points. Some of them might trigger in you, like, I wish we could unpack that. We will unpack that more. Um, But let's dive in. Pray for me. (laughs) Book of Galatians in one one flow. Here we go. Um, The book of Galatians uh, was written by Paul, uh, just like Philippians, But the book of Galatians, the tone of it is completely different than Philippians. If you remember Philippians, Paul's like writing to his favorite child. He's like, I thank God every day that I remember you. And he's like, you guys are doing so good. I'm so proud of you. Galatian, the the book of Galatians is not like that. He says things like, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Uh, He says, uh, I am astonished, like, I am shocked that you have turned so quickly from the gospel. Like, Paul's tone in Galatians is not one of, like, hey, you're doing great. It's one of just complete bewilderment. And he's going, I just don't understand. At times, he's even a bit offensive in it. Like, even the language that he uses, he uses the strongest language in the book of Galatians than any other epistle, any other letter that he wrote to anybody else. Now, the other thing to remember, the book of Galatians is not to a church in Galatia. It's to a a region called Galatia that has many churches in it. Um, And really, those churches uh, primarily are in Iconium, Lystra, and uh, Derbe. Um, And those you could read about in Acts chapter 12, 13, 14, and 15. Uh, And if you remember in Derbe, uh, Paul was... Uh, stoned nearly to death. Uh, So he's been persecuted in uh, Galatia. He's gone through a lot in Galatia. He met Timothy in Galatia. So there's a lot of history going on here in this epistle. The other thing to remember is that this people group in Galatia was not primarily Jewish. Um, It was not primarily Roman even. It was an area of Rome uh, that was was a people group called the Gauls, if you remember, uh, you know, your, your, uh, your, one, your history 101 class in college, uh, the Gauls were taken over by the Romans. And so there's always been this sort of animosity toward, toward the Gauls. The, the Romans really looked down on the Gauls. And so there's a lot of that sort of um, stuff going on in the background, as well as Romans and other people from other parts of the con- uh, other countries. So it's this kind of like, it's similar to America in the sense that there's a lot of different cultures that are going on in Galatia. So Paul is writing to them, and he's writing, and he's very upset because there's this group uh, that he refers to, uh, and, it's a, and it's a group that, uh, that we would call um, the Judaizers. So the Judaizers uh, kind of come in after Paul, and they feel like it's their duty to clean up the theology of Paul. And so Paul's going, justification by faith. And then the Judaizers come in, and they go, well, kind of. Justification by faith, but also the law is also good, and you should also hold on to that. Paul calls them the circumcision party, uh, which is not my kind of party. Um, uh, he, and he talks about circumcision in there. I mean, it's like this. I'm sorry, it's in the Bible. Um, and, uh, and Galatians, he is being very visceral. He's being very clear and going, hey, look, we, we cannot 
stand for any change in the gospel of Christ. We cannot stand for that. And he, he carries that sort of urgency like a, like a father who's going, you cannot stray from this. So as he dives into the book of Galatians, he's got a short intro. Uh, it's not as long as Philippians. Philippians is like, you guys are so awesome. Uh, Galatians, it seems like he's like, yeah, peace, and peace to you and, and the Lord Jesus Christ, blah, 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 blah. And then he dives right in and, and, uh, and he, he starts hitting pretty hard. Galatians to me, uh, and a lot of scholars, they say it really is like broken up into these three sections. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I call them like the three movements of Galatians. The first movement of Galatians is in chapter one and chapter two. And Paul, the best summary of it is Paul is defending his apostleship. So he's going, look, I have, I have been called by God to this. And he's reminding them, like, remember, I followed the law. I was a Jewish uh, rabbi. I was zealous about the law. I was persecuting Christians. And then I met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and my life changed. And Paul's like, I understand the law. I know all, of that, all that's good about it. I know all that's bad about it. And he's going, look, trust me, when Jesus comes crashing in, and it's something completely different. And this is Paul's attitude toward them. So he is defending his apostleship, and he's defending the purity of the gospel. And that really is, he's going, look, you cannot add to this thing. And that takes us to our ver first verse. If you've got your Bibles or you've got your phone, turn with me. Uh, I'll be reading out of the ESV. Um, and we'll start in Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 6. And here is the tone that Paul is setting. I am astonished... Like, I'm shocked that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed." Let him be accursed. Uh, the word in, in Greek would be anathema, um, which literally translates to devoted to destruction. Let them be devoted to destruction. He, he's saying this in very shocking language, and this really would be the one-to-one the -one translation of what he's saying. He said, if anybody comes in, they add to the gospel, they start tweaking it, they start twisting it, they start perverting the gospel in any way, let them be damned is basically what he's saying. And at first you go, yikes, Paul, jeez. And Paul goes, did I offend you? Because I'm going to say it again, because he goes right, right away, he goes, and I say to you again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul is using the strongest language he ever uses in any of his letters right here. He is very adamant. He's going, you cannot mess with the gospel. You cannot mess with the gospel. And really what he's saying, and I love that he says this, he's like, you're quickly deserting and you're turning to a different gospel. And then he quickly kind of turns on that idea and he says, not that there is another one. Not that there is another gospel. Paul is saying, if you change the gospel, it ceases to be the gospel anymore. It's something completely different. I love the way that uh, Skip uh, Heitzig says this. He says, Really, in the world, there are two religions. And he was talking about the book of Galatians. He said, there's really only two religions in the world. Uh, there's 
you know, all sorts of different, I know you take Western Civ, you learn about all these different religions. Really, he says it boils down into two camps. There's the religion of human achievement or the religion of divine accomplishment. I love that, the religion of human achievement or divine accomplishment. And this is it, right? Like, human achievement is every other religion where it's like, what can you do to get to God? How can you clean up? How could you follow rules better? How could you apply principles to your life to get to the point where God notices you and you get his attention and you get in the good, in the good club, right? Even secular humanism as a form of religion saying, just do you, you do whatever you want to do. Like, there's just this idea of human achievement, what you want to do, whatever you care about, whatever makes you better. All of that stuff is one side. Standing alone on the other side is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the accomplishment of God. Standing alone. Jesus, it's the thing that separates us from any other religion. It's not about what we do to get to God. It's about what God did to get to us. This is the gospel. And Paul's saying, if you forget that and you start teaching other people that, you are cursed. And really, it's if you change the gospel a little bit, you lose it. It's Jesus plus nothing. Like the Judaizers are going, Jesus plus the law, you know, Jesus plus some good morals. And he's going, no, it's Jesus plus nothing. That is the gospel. It's radical. My dad is a, uh, is a mad scientist, and um, he started a business 30-something years ago, uh, and he makes telescopes out of carbon fiber. Uh, he actually makes even the optics for those telescopes out of carbon fiber, and, um, and he just does crazy stuff, and he's worked for NASA. He's done stuff for, like, uh, the, the particle accelerator thing in CERN. Like, he's done all sorts of things. Uh, I, I used to work with him a lot in my teenage years and in my 20s and 30s, and we even built um, equipment that is now on the space station, which is really awesome. And... Um, and I remember when I was a teenager, I was, had been working in my dad's shop. I knew what my dad did. And my friend came over, and I think we were, like, going to go out to lunch or something. And he came over, and I said, do you want me to show you around? And he's like, yeah. So I showed him around the shop, and he was just going, wow, this is crazy. I said, I know, you know. And we're walking around. And one of the things that my dad does is when you make optics, uh, you make, uh, for a telescope, like a concave optic, um, and it, whether it's made out of glass or, or carbon fiber, there is this point where it's shiny and reflective, but it's not like a mirror yet. Uh, you can't quite see yourself in it. And to do that, you have to put a very thin layer of metal on it, and then it becomes a mirror. So the process that my dad does is he hangs a mirror up in this vacuum chamber, and this chamber sucks out all of the impurities. It pulls out every bit of air so that it actually turns into like space in there. No air, nothing going on in there. And then he superheats some aluminum or some other materials and puts a coating on that mirror. And like magic, in a couple of minutes, you watch in the little, you know, the little view thing and you see it turn into a mirror before your eyes. And I was explaining that very principle uh, to my friend, saying, hey, this is what my dad does. He's like, oh, that's cool. I said, do you want to see inside the vacuum chamber? And he said, yeah. Now, in the back of my mind, I thought, this vacuum chamber might be sealed, actually vacuumed down. And I knew that that was a pretty common way that my dad would store it. 
And I like ran all this stuff in my head. You know, when you like run something through your head, like in a split second, you're like, uh, I think it's okay. And in my mind, I thought, I'll just open it a little bit. And if it's under vacuum, it'll just let a little bit of air in and then we'll be fine. Uh, and I was super wrong. And, um, and I, I walked up and kind of hesitated and I opened the switch and it was like a bomb went off. I mean, it was just, and this thing weighs like multiple thousands of pounds. It's like solid steel. And the entire structure hopped in the air like 10 inches, which is wild. I mean, it just was boom and scared the living heck out of me. And, um, and then as the air rushed into that chamber, it destroyed everything inside there. Like the rush of that air just destroyed all the equipment, all the glass, anything that was in there. Just, and out came all these pieces of glass. And, and my dad came out in classic dad mode. And he just like said nothing. And he was like, which is dad translation for what are you thinking? What were you thinking? So I was, I'm so sorry, dad, you know, and, uh, and um, really, I mean, I think this is, this is what Paul is saying. The gospel is that vacuum chamber. You let something in there, you blow it up. You turn it into something completely different. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a radical, crazy thing. It's given to us by grace, something we didn't deserve, and there's something in us that wants to, like, earn it a little bit. Like, Lord, thanks for that free gift, but can I work it off a little bit, you know? Can I do some yard work for you or something? You know, like, is there something I can do for this free gift? And Jesus is going, no, this is free. This is just for you. And Paul is honing in on this in chapter 1 and 2. He's going, look, salvation is found only in faith in the Messiah Jesus. That is the only place that we find salvation, we are not justified by faith. Uh, we are justified by faith in Jesus. We are justified. That was almost a, the opposite of what I wanted to say. We are justified by faith in Jesus, not adherence to the law. And he is so stinking clear on that in this entire book. You read it and you just feel the tension of him going, look, do not think that salvation depends on you at all. It is a free gift of God so that nobody can boast. This is what we've been given. So he fights for the purity of the gospel, and he leads us into this other idea that as we accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, we accept it into our own life, and there's something that happens in our life like it happened with Jesus. And as we die to ourselves, we pick up a new life, and we are resurrected. And the gospel is that sort of prophetic insight into what Jesus did for us and what we experience ourselves, and it culminates into one of the most famous verses in Galatians, Galatians 2.20, and he says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is going, look, what, what happened in the gospel happens in our own life. We go through a death to self, and as we die to ourselves, we pick up new life, just like Jesus said. And that's the end of that first movement in Galatians. The second movement uh, is Galatians 3 and 4, which I would say this. Really, it's summed up in this one question. Are we, as followers of Jesus, are we in the family? Are we in the family? 
Now, the Judaizers, they would know what the family means. That means, are you a son of Abraham? Like Abraham is the thing that, that, all, that all Jews, even, even up until now, they were all found that sort of camaraderie of, we are all children of Abraham. And, and like we've seen songs about it even as kids, right? It's like Father Abraham. Like we are in the family. We are, we are connected with him. That comes from this idea in Galatians 3 and 4 when Paul says, yes, the family of Abraham is beautiful and it's anointed by God. But Paul says, God spoke the gospel through his promise to Abraham. What does that mean? He says, when God was giving his promise to Abraham, and a lot of us remember that, he looked at the stars and said, your kids are going to be as numerous as the stars, and your family is going to be huge. Your descendants are going to be as plentiful as grains of sand on the seashore. And why are your, is your family going to be blessed? So that you can bless all nations. And that is what God promises to Abraham. And Paul is going, you need to pay attention to this. This is not just a blessing for the Jews. This is a blessing for the entire world. And the original intent to this blessing to Abraham is that he would bless the entire world. And he's saying, don't you see, now this has come to pass through the gospel. It's not just for Jews. It's for Gentiles as well. It's for everybody. It's for everyone. And so Paul is saying we are in the family. And that naturally brings him into this question, though. In the Old Testament, there's this thing called the law. And this is the thing that, again, the Judaizers are trying to push. So Paul goes, so what's the purpose of the law? This is one of those things that I will give you a short answer right now, and we'll give you a longer answer later. Um, but just in summary, Paul says this. He said, there are some good things about the law. The law is there as a temporary guardian he uses that word guardian until Christ came. He uses that in chapter 3. Um, it is put in place by angels, which is crazy. I had never noticed that before, but it's in verse three, uh, uh, or chapter 3, verse 19. So there's this sort of plan of God as he's releasing the law, and it reveals the nature of God to the world around us. So as we read the law, as we look into it, there are some good things. So Paul, he says some pretty harsh things about the salvific power of the, of the law. He said, there is no power to save you in the law. That is not what he's saying. But he's saying there is the value of it, and it was very necessary for us in the, in the, on the way to redemption. But he does not go into full uh, antinomianism. Antinomianism is a fancy word for people, and it is around today, who do not put any value on the Old Testament or any value on the law. And they go, you don't need to read it. Just go into the Old, get in, get in the New Testament. Um, there is value. And let me just say, this is, a, this is a stance from Living Streams. There is value in the Old Testament. There is value in the law. And it teaches you a lot about the character of God and the necessity for a Savior, this is what William Barclay says in summary of this in Galatians. I love the way he says it. He says, the law has its own place in the scheme of things. First, it tells us what sin is. If there is no law, we cannot break it, and there can be no such thing as sin. 
So this is pretty simple. But without law, we don't know we're breaking any law, so we have no idea that we're sinning. Does that change the, the nature of sin? No, it does not change the nature of sin. It just means that the law is acting as a magnifying glass on an already very hard situation, which is sin in the world. Second, and most important, the law really drives us to the grace of God. The trouble about the law is that because we are all sinful, we can never keep it perfectly. Its effect, therefore, is to show us our weakness and to drive us to a despair in which we see that there is nothing left but to throw ourselves on the mercy and the love of God. The law convinces us of our own insufficiency and in the end compels us to admit that the only thing that can save us is the grace of God. In other words, the law is an essential stage on the way to that grace. This is what Paul's trying to drive home in chapters three and four. He's going, look, there is value to the law. He calls it good. He calls it holy. Uh, There are things about it that were very necessary, but it cannot save you. I'd say it like this. The law reveals, but it doesn't redeem. The law reveals the nature of your heart, the nature of the world, and the hopeless place that you and I find ourselves in without Jesus. But it has no power to redeem. And that's that's what Paul is driving home. He's going, redemption is only found in the gospel. And I think a lot of us, as we we read about this, we go, well, you know, I'm not trying to add any laws here, you know. I think there's probably very few of us in this room that are like, can we add the dietary laws back into, like, the the faith statement of living streams? Or, you know, like, I, I think there's very few of us that are going, let's just go back to the letter of the law. But I will say this, the spirit of religion is still alive and well in the church, and we need to pay attention to it, even in our own souls, especially in our own souls. In, uh, yeah, years ago, while my wife and I were in Cambodia, uh, we were serving, and, and um, we were going out to these uh, smaller villages in Cambodia, and we were bringing food and preaching the gospel and doing a thing for the kids, and and, uh, and we loved it. And we were there, and it was kind of the beginning stages of the, of the rainy season in Cambodia, which is no joke. I mean, the rainy season, it's like no rain, no rain, and then only rain for like three months. And so we were in the beginning stages of that. And um, so we, we, we're driving in this van. We're loaded up. We've got food. And then we come up to this crossroad, and uh, it's completely flooded out. And we realize you know, it's not, like, it's not like Phoenix where you're like, oh, well, the one-on-one's closed. I'll just take the 202. It's not like that in Cambodia. You're like, there's no hope now. Like, we, we can't get in there. And so we knew it's like, okay, we're hitting a roadblock. And we saw some of the leaders in the village that were across the river. And so we rolled up our pant legs and met them in the middle and handed them some food and blessed them. And, and then we're like, well, bummer, we got to turn around. So we turned the van around and pretty soon we get stuck in some mud. And our driver, like, he was not giving us a whole lot of confidence because he just did the thing where it's like, if I can't move, I'll just hit the grass harder, and then it'll move. And it was just spinning out, spinning out, spinning out. And uh, so he said, well, we're kind of stuck. You know, I'm going to call my friend and see if he could get us to get unstuck. And like classic Americans, it was, it was me. I was like, you know what? We got to do something, you know? Like, we just can't sit here in this van. We got to go do something. So I, I was like, you know, the... the the, the city's only a couple of miles away. Let's just walk back. It's not very long, you know? And it's lightly raining at this point. And um, so we get out and we start walking in the mud of the road. Now, the mud in Cambodia is not like the mud in Phoenix. <laughs> 
it's very different. Mud in Phoenix is maybe kind of, you know, sandy and, you know, maybe it kind of makes a mess, you know. The mud in Cambodia is like thick, thick, very sticky, very clay. Like it's, it's hard to explain, but it's like if you put your hand in the mud and you lift it out, you will have a clean layer of mud on your hand and it'll take you 20 minutes to get it off. So we're walking in this and every step we take adds just a little thin layer of mud. And every like five minutes or so, we have to stop and we have like this much mud stuck on our feet. We have to just like scrape it off and keep going. And at some point, one of, one of the people on the team, uh, he was like, why don't we just take our shoes off? This is stupid. So took our shoes off and the mud stuck to our bare feet just the same as it stuck to our shoes. And we would be carrying like eight pounds of mud on each foot and, and we'd like scrape it off. And at some point we realized we've been out here for like hours and we've gone maybe like a half a mile. Like this is not good. And as we were sitting there hopeless, our van pulled up. <laughs> And uh, he's like, hey, get in, you know, we got it going. And, uh, and, and we, we hopped in, we were muddy and soaking wet. And I was like, well, that was a very pointless endeavor. This is the law for the life of the believer. Maybe you pick up a little layer, you're taking steps, and you're like, man, here's a, here's a good idea. Like, maybe this is, this is how I can earn some of that back. Maybe this is how I can prove to people around me that I follow Jesus. Maybe this is how I can you know, earn something from God. Maybe this is how I can earn some favor from man if I do it like this. And layer after layer keeps adding on to your feet till you have eight pounds of mud on each foot. And you're like, why is following Jesus so hard? Why is this so hard? And sometimes following Jesus is hard. We have to die to ourselves. That is, that is true. But what Jesus promised is when we die to ourselves, we find life. I think for a lot of us in this room, as we're walking through, we have to pay attention to our soul and say, where am I carrying the law? Where am I carrying the law with me? Where am I making up rules? I love what Jeff had to say last week. Jeff, because I know him well, and, uh, and I know he's just like, type A, let's get out there. Let's go do something. Let's go, you know, do something big for God. And even when he was saying, you know, talking about writing on the top of his journal saying, get out there, like, go do something for God today, like, you know. And realizing just only a couple of weeks ago, after years of writing this in his notebook, he was like, this is bondage to me. This is, this is an area of condemnation, because what if today I don't go out there and see some big stuff that God does? Religion's sneaky that way. It can twist something that started off as really good and turn it into a place of condemnation in the life of a believer. And there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. The gospel of grace is a radical thing. It really is. And the last movement of Galatians, it's in Galatians 5 and 6, Paul says this. He's like, okay, there's the purity of the gospel there's the law and saying, hey, we don't earn anything. Justification by faith is 100%. Jesus doesn't go, I paid for like 90%. You got to pay the other 10. That is not how it works. Jesus paid it in complete. Any sin that we ever committed, any sin we're currently committing, any sin we're about to commit, Jesus paid for the entire thing. And some of us go, that's too good to be true. I have to go work in the back or do something. Like, I got to do something to work this off. And Jesus is going, no, this is a free gift for you. It is not works 
so that nobody can boast. And this is the natural turning. In this last movement of Galatians, Paul talks about the freedom of Christ. He says in, in the beginning of Galatians chapter 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. I love that. For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul is going, why did Jesus set you free? Because he wants you to be free. <laughs> I love that redundancy. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And why does he have to say that? Because for whatever reason, the tendency of our heart is to put us right back into bondage. It's like the temptation of our heart is to earn it back again and to be stuck in the mud and to go, you know what? I'm just going to walk myself. I can make a checklist. I can do some things to serve God. And pretty soon we're stuck. And then the van comes up anyway. And we're like, gosh, if we had just waited, if we'd just been patient. Jesus said, if you want to bear fruit in your life, to abide in him. Paul, when he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit, I love that it's fruit because it's the natural thing. And this is what um, Jeff was talking about last week. When you abide with Christ, what happens is you naturally start looking and acting more like him. And Paul hits back on this idea. So the Judaizers are saying it's complete salvation by Jesus. We can't do that because people are then going to be free and they're going to be lawless and they're going to sin. We can't have that. We have to like say, hey, yes, it is Jesus, but there's also, also these boundary conditions. And Paul goes, you are forgetting one major piece, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the law written on our hearts, just like it says in Jeremiah 31. It was prophesied a long time ago. It's this thing called conviction that we all carry around and we take for granted. We think everybody has that, but no, that is the fruit of a follower of Jesus that has the Holy Spirit in their life, convicting them of things. What a gift to us. And Paul goes, God loves you too much to leave you where you're at. Don't submit again to a yoke of burden from the law and don't submit again to a yoke of burden from sin. Both of them are harsh taskmasters. They're harsh taskmasters. And the Holy Spirit brings what we call sanctification. So we have complete justification in Jesus. Anything that we've ever done wrong, Jesus paid for incom incomplete. He signed on the dotted line. We don't have to pay for that anymore. You don't have to earn that back anymore. You don't have to do enough good things to get that back. You've already gotten it. You have it 100% if you believe in Jesus. You believe that he rose from the dead. That is yours. And then sanctification comes along, and it's the slow process of becoming more and more like Jesus. And our hope is even today, in the last hour of this service, that we get a little bit of conviction together. We hear a little bit from the Holy Spirit, and each one of us is just a tiny bit more like Jesus when we walk out of this place. It's not up to you. It's the Holy Spirit in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. What a beautiful thing. And Paul says this, and I think if I was going to sum up the movement, the third movement of Galatians in chapter 5 and 6, I would say this. Freedom in Christ is not shackled by the old law, nor is it allowance for the old flesh. Let me say it another way, too. 
I think the other thing that as he leads into is talking a lot about community, and I think this too. It's my other summary that's a little bit different. Holy Spirit-fueled sanctification leads to Holy Spirit-formed community. Why? Paul, when he says the whole of the law is really summed up in this, love, the, love your neighbor as yourself. Paul is pushing back on this idea that the law is there to make you look good and to make you look holy. He's going, the whole point of it is that we'd love God, that we'd love the people around us really well. He says, bear one another's burdens so fulfilling the law of Christ. He says, walk by the Spirit so you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. So he's telling the Judaizers, look, you don't need the law. We have the Holy Spirit. And when you interact with the Holy Spirit, sin looks a lot less tempting because you know he's better. And at the same time, it gives us humility. Bear one another's burdens. Here's the last thing I want to say to us today. One of the areas where I see religion alive and well is on how we treat one another when we have a moral failing. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 1. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you, and you who are spiritual, so those of you who are filled with the Holy Spirit and you have discernment, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness and keep watch over yourself lest you too be tempted. I think when you look around and you see church leaders that fall, you see people's responses on social media, the heart behind all those responses are, ha, I knew it. I knew it. I knew that leader was sinning. I knew there was something behind the scenes. Maybe someone in your friend group, you go, ah, I knew it. I knew they weren't living up to it. Katya. And Paul says, there is no space for that sort of attitude in the kingdom of God. We've all, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short. And he says this, to restore them with a spirit of gentleness. Because the goal is not condemnation. The goal is restoration, right? The goal is not catching someone in the act. The goal is restoring them because you know that God's will for them is better than that. And oh Lord, forgive us for operating in religion. Forgive us for not restoring each other like we should. And he said, have the humility. Say, bear one another's burdens, fulfilling the law of Christ, and keep watch over yourself, lest you too be tempted. This attitude of, and I could get sucked into that too. I have to be really careful. This is one of the many places where the spirit of the law and the spirit of religion is still alive and well. Whenever it calls you to poke out imperfections in the people around you without realizing the gift of God, through Jesus Christ for each one of us. If we lack that humility, Paul talks a lot about that. Like all of this sanctification, all of this Holy Spirit presence leads us into this place where we are humble with one another. We love one another. We serve one another. We can't create a community that people look at as a city on a hill if we're backbiting. He says this, yeah, I love you. He's like, don't use it as opportunity to devour one another. Gosh, how many times have we done that, you know? My prayer for us as a church and as a community is that as we humble ourselves around the gospel, that as we come around the book of Galatians, that we have a joy and a love for one another that boils up from a deep gratefulness and understanding of the gospel. 
because the gospel takes us a lot lower than we think we should. We were not just sinners separated by God. Colossians says we were enemies of God. And I remember that season before I came to know Jesus where somebody would talk about Jesus and I'd go, ooh, ouch, I don't want to talk about that. Anything other than that. What I didn't know is that I was an enemy of God. I was opposed to anything having to do with Jesus at all. We were in a much darker situation than any of us understand. Not one of us in this room understands how dire it was. And the gospel brings us low and it brings us higher than we think we deserve. Because on the backside of it, Jesus goes, you are sons and daughters of God. You have an inheritance in the kingdom. You're not just servants of mine. I call you friends. I mean, all the language of Jesus makes no sense, right? Because when we confront our depravity, we go, what do we deserve? We deserve nothing. And Jesus is standing there going, I know, but I want you. He's going, I know, but I made a way where there was no way at all. For God so loved the world, he so loved you, that he gave his only begotten son. Forgive us for ever thinking that we've graduated beyond that idea.